Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers, and of course, uh, our guest, as we said before, is John Hood, who's been with us a number of times. And guess what? Our topic is the current uh, situation that we find ourselves in with the coronavirus and COVID-19 and all the ramifications of what's happening, both politically, economically, and so forth. John, what are you hearing? Uh, You know, there's a lot of people working on uh, medical advances, and uh, I think the general consensus is that we're going to have better therapeutic options on this sooner than we're going to have a vaccine. Uh, Right. But that's, that's one of the things that could change an awful lot if we suddenly find that we have much better uh, medical treatments for this. The other thing that's interesting is the recovery rate uh, with, uh, you know, if you subtract, assuming that these, th- this data is correct, the number of people that have the disease and the number of people dying, the, the other number has to be recovery. And that still seems to be relatively high. Well, it's even higher than it looks because we, we have vastly understated how many people have been infected with the coronavirus. I don't think, I, this is no great conspiracy or anything. It's just we, we haven't been testing people who are asymptomatic or get a sniffle and that's all that happens. So it, it is a reasonable guess based upon the evidence that we have that North Carolina probably has 200,000 infected people, maybe more. It's nothing like the little, the small, much more 15,000, 18,000. That's not even close to where it's 10 or 15 times what we think. Now, on the one hand, you might say, gosh, that's horrible news. That means the virus has spread so much further than we thought. Well, yes, that's true. It's a much bigger problem. If you thought it was very small, it's not small. On the other hand, it means the vast majority of people either get no disease of any consequence at all from infection of the virus or they recover without very much trouble. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the loss of life because the loss of life is serious. And it depends on the, the jurisdiction. In New York, the, the fatality rate for people who got infected is higher for whatever reason. It could be because the hospitals were overwhelmed or, or something. But in North Carolina, it is likely that we're looking at a fatality rate, an infection fatality rate, people who, are, uh, who have died for complications of COVID-19 divided by the number of people infected is probably a quarter of 1% or a third of 1% or something like that. Now, if you get to a really large denominator of a fraction, then the numerator could still be big. So we, of course, that doesn't, we want everybody in North Carolina to get infected because even one third of 1% of North Carolinians is a lot of people. And I'm just saying the the, 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 the original fear was that this had a fatality rate that was just astronomical, that it was 5 or 8 or 10% or something like that. It's not anything like that. And there was also a fear that would overwhelm our hospitals. The number of people who need hospitalization from COVID-19 apparently is quite a bit smaller than, we, than, than was originally thought. I don't blame anybody for sort of erring on the side of caution, for going with the information you have in February or March. But now that we know more about the, the situation, not a lot, but more about the situation, more about the fact that the, the fatality risk is heavily weighted towards people who are elderly, infirm, and, and people have comorbid, um, comorbidities like obesity, uh, this doesn't mean that, great, well, then all those people, we don't care about them and they're going to die. That's not the point. The point is if you know that the risk is not equally distributed, 
then you can start thinking more rationally about how to mitigate those risks. For example, we should absolutely be planning to reopen our schools. Uh, it would be foolish not to reopen the schools. Uh, people are going to demand it. It's going to happen, in my view, including the universities and colleges. And that doesn't mean there aren't anybody on campuses who are at risk or people who are at home who might be infected if someone comes home with the virus. But it does mean that with reasonable precautions and restrictions and focusing our testing and tracing resources on institutions like nursing homes, rest homes, assisted care facilities, hospitals, uh, prisons, jails, those are the places to spend our scarce resources so that we can uh, basically get the best uh, benefit for the dollar expended. John, in the last week, there's been some news uh, that I, I don't think received a great deal of coverage or as much as maybe it should about the uh, progress that's being made. Uh, I think it's by Oxford University. I think it's Oxford um, on developing a, a vaccine. And they, they seem to think they may have something that uh, will be available as early as, uh, as September. What do you hear about things like that? Uh, that would be a wonderful event, and I think we should not be counting on it. I think every time someone says, we have a cure, we have a vaccine, things are looking good, we say, good, okay, you keep working on it. Because it's unlikely, it's unlikely, and we shouldn't be betting on unlikely events. Virus, uh, vaccines usually take longer than that, and you're dealing with this kind of disease. Vaccines are usually not all that effective, at least at first. Now, this may be completely different, and that would be fantastic. But I think that our public officials, our leaders, and all of us as North Carolinians, we should be assuming that we're going to be dealing with this virus for months and months and months without a vaccine and without fantastically successful cures. Some better therapies and better as we go on and better knowledge. I think we need to figure out how to move ahead without those things so that if and when those things happen, it's a wonderful surprise rather than something that we're counting on and then it doesn't deliver. I think that would be more dangerous. Well, obviously, one of the things that everyone is missing are the mass uh, audiences that are usually in attendance at Major League Baseball, stock car races, golf tournaments, and so forth. Uh, so if we are moving back to opening the colleges, what's your take on whether or not the athletic events uh, – college football, for example, uh, should be played? Well, uh, I am not the best person to ask because, as people will know, my bias would be to not worry very much about college athletics because it's about 20th on my list of what I care about on colleges and university campuses. Uh, but, of course, it's a big part of people's experience going to college, working in a college, being a fan or an alumnus, alumni of a college. So I understand it. I think it is. I think group gatherings of that size really are among the last things that are going to come back. Um, people need to understand that. They need to be resigned to the fact that maybe games played without very much of, a, of an audience in stands because it's being played primarily for television. They should accept that. It's just a reality that you're going to have seat empty, lots of empty seats, not because people don't want to go, but because they're not allowed to come in. Yeah. Uh, that would be better than nothing, though, and I yeah. do think we should yeah. proceed along those lines. Well, that's that's one of the advantages of television. It's, uh, and of course, uh, the television revenue alone is uh, is a significant amount uh, as far as yes, and TV stations, as you may know, Don, are are hitting it too because uh, you know, advertisers are starting to pull out 
of yeah. the purchases they have made for network TV and cable TV because they're just, it's not as if, of course, lots of people are watching television way more than they used to, but there isn't new content being made. And so the concern on the part of advertisers is that they can't advertise for shows that aren't being made and aren't going to show up in the fall. And so they're trying to yank that back. So sports revenue would be a godsend for everybody who relies on revenue, whether in the broadcasting business or in the concessions and restaurant business, bars and restaurants as they open. I mean, if you don't have a lot of games on the screen, then people may not want to go out and have a burger. Um, So all of these things are connected. And I truly believe it is not a question of if it's simply a question of how quickly we restore large swaths of our economy uh, to something like, uh, wouldn't be normal activity, but significant enough activity for people to have an earning, to have a living and for goods and services to be produced. The economy is not about money. It's about goods and services. You can pass money around as long, you can borrow more money and spend more money and borrow more money and spend more money. If goods and services are not being produced, then we are getting poorer. So we have to allow businesses to create and sell goods and services. That is what economic growth means. It's not about redistributing income back and forth. John, do you think, uh, particularly New York, where, uh, as you said earlier, the cases and the numbers are unbelievable, um, do you think there will be uh, an exodus of a number, a large number of people from New York wanting to move to other places? And uh, I've heard several economists say that they think North Carolina might be the beneficiary of, of uh, some of the results of the uh, uh, of the whole situation, and that would be one of them, that our population may swell. What do you think? I agree with them, and I think they're, again, I'll just give you three quick reasons why I think that's right. One of them is you live in a densely packed place like New York or Chicago or Detroit, even in the north. Uh, people may just want to be in their cars rather than on public transportation. That may be one reason why people want to move to a place like North Carolina, which is a more car car-oriented commuting pattern, more car-oriented economy. The second reason is that it's warmer. I think people have already been moving to the the south and west because they like, on average, warmer weather. Now we know it's likely that there's at least a component of of COVID-19 infection that's related to temperature. So people may want to be in a warmer place where they think, you know, there's got to be some reasons why Florida and New York, even though Florida has more people than New York, um, or about the same. Well, it's more actually. Uh, why did Florida have so many fewer cases? I mean, they're all, Florida's also connected to the international economy, lots of international travel. Well, may, it might be simply climate. And so North Carolina is a warmer place and might become more attractive for that reason. And the third reason is, uh, on average, uh, states with, uh, with what we might call the red states or st- states with not just more spread out commuting patterns, but more of a tradition of, of smaller government have tended to do better uh, during the crisis than the, some of these Northeastern states. Now, I don't think that's a causal relationship. I don't think there's any reason why people would necessarily, like, I should leave New York and move to South Carolina because the politicians in South Carolina are smarter or something. I don't know that that's true, but I think some people will do it. So if you think all three of those things connect, yes, there'll be a continued influx. It's already been an influx of people from the North to the South, I think this will accentuate the trend. Well, that's that's sort of the view that I share. And I I think we will continue to see that North Carolina is a very popular destination. 
and especially from people in the uh, colder and nor more northern climates. Our guest is John Hood, and we'll be back with another segment, our final segment of Carolina Newsmakers, right after we take time out for these messages. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. I came out in the 11th grade. Nobody was embracing you. The kids were cruel. It was very difficult to be gay. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. The hard part was determining that I was gonna do it, but I definitely didn't do it alone. At age 30, with the help of her mentor, Carissa finished her high school diploma. I have a mentor, Maria. She convinced me to continue my education and to finish what I started to get my diploma. She just never judges. She's a true role model. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen and you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on our final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest, and we've been talking about, guess what, the uh, current situation that we're in with COVID-19 and the uh, coronavirus, uh, coronavirus well, I'm having trouble saying, is that a part of the disease? Uh, but uh, the, the current situation we're in, and we've talked about the economic impact of North Carolina, the re reopening and so forth. Um, we've talked about uh, uh, the effect on the elections. And if you miss those segments, you can go back to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear a repeat of that broadcast. Or if you're listening to one of the stations that carries only the half-hour version of this program, you can pick up the two segments that you missed by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. John, uh, much is being said about how important it is for uh, federal aid to come in and support uh, the economy. Uh, of course, at the same time, we're piling on national debt. So where's the balance in that? Because you know, sooner or later, this will have to be paid back. That's right. Think? This is not a bottomless pit. Yeah. Um, and so I, here's what I think. I, I wish that states uh, had saved more money than they did. Uh, even North Carolina, I wish we had somewhat more savings than we do. But when you have a, an event like this that is really unprecedented, it's completely understandable not to have money sitting around to address <laughs> all the needs and that you would have to borrow. I do not think states should be in the business of borrowing for operating expenses. So in this case, I can understand uh, the argument for federal aid, and we've already had a, a, a about $4 billion sent down to state and local governments in North Carolina from Washington. Of course, that's really just everybody's money borrowed. Um, and I think we'll probably see more. My major concern is I don't think we should either require that states and localities spend this federal aid only on new things, because the first and foremost responsibility of governments in North Carolina should be to maintain current services. We're going to, as I said, have billions of dollars in deficits. 
And I think that the most important reason to have federal aid is a kind of a shock absorber to keep the COVID-19 crisis from ending up, you know, disemploying people who work for the state, destroying services that people need, whether it's uh, health care or, or uh, public safety or schools. So I think we have to preserve those things in the short run. Uh, if federal aid is going to come, I think it should be used for that. On the other hand, I don't think we should use federal aid as an excuse to let states that, for example, have unfunded liabilities for their pensions or have otherwise made uh, reckless decisions. I don't think they ought to have been bailed out uh, by the federal government. So I think we should require that if states have unfunded pensions, for example, in North Carolina, we have an unfunded retiree health system. Our pension fund is okay, but our retiree health system is not good. I think in those cases, as a condition for receiving federal aid, the states need to state very clearly what their liabilities are and have a quick plan for paying it off. That means cutting spending or raising taxes or whatever it takes to pay off those debts. And if a state takes federal money, blows the money, doesn't use it to pay off its debts, uh, then I believe, or, or doesn't pay off its debts, then I believe that the state should be required to pay the federal government back with punitive interest. So what I'm not interested in is the federal government bailing out all the decisions states made over the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, but I do think it is inevitable there'll be some more federal aid, and I just think it needs to be used in the most efficient way possible, which for states is probably just plugging revenue holes. The Great Depression, of course, uh, was bailed out in a, great de- in a great amount by World War II, but also uh, a number of public works programs. And, of course, we have a long list of infrastructure needs in this country. Do you think this is a viable way to keep the economy going is to pump more money into repairing and rebuilding our infrastructure? I think that we should build the infrastructure that we need, ignoring whether there is a recession or not, because infrastructure spending has a notorious uh, effect of coming later than is required for economic stimulus. Usually takes too long from the time you figure out what you're doing until the time the money is spent. You're going to stimulate the economy with, with government dollars. It's really not an efficient way to do it. It's not an argument against investing in infrastructure. We should do that because the infrastructure is valuable. But I wouldn't go off and say, well, let's double the amount of construction we were planning to do because that'll stimulate the economy. It's not usually a good idea. I would use those federal dollars, again, to try to sustain what we're doing and sustain, if we can, uh, our road resurfacing and the refurbishment we need of state buildings and school buildings. I mean, these are things we need to be doing, water systems. But don't go out there and start making a list of everything you could possibly do in order to uh, employ lots of people. We, We don't spend money on infrastructure to employ workers. We do it in order to build the the asset as inexpensively as possible. If you could do it with 10% fewer workers, you should, because the taxpayers are ultimately paying for it. So I don't think it's a jobs program, but I do think infrastructure spending should be maintained if possible during this crisis, because we're going to, we have some real needs that need to be addressed and kicking them down, kicking the can down the road again is unwise. We've got about uh, two and a half minutes left. Uh, So let's fast forward to September 1. And uh, what's your best guess of where we're going to be uh, as far as our economy, uh, the reopening, and at that point in time, then what effect would that have on the elections? You've got about two and a half minutes. 
I believe that the economy will be recovering by September. I fear that the recovery rate will be fairly slow and that unemployment rate in particular will be a lagging indicator. We may have surplus. We may have way more unemployment than we're used to for uh, many, many months, and that will be horrible. But I do think that things will be recovering and people, some businesses will be getting back into something like their former shape by September. I do believe schools will be opening and colleges and universities will be opening because uh, I really, frankly, don't think there's an alternative. People, parents are not going to pay, for example, college tuition uh, for another semester of what a lot of their students experienced uh, from March through April and May. They're just not going to do it. They'll just suspend. They'll just take a gap year or something. And I don't think that's what the universities want. So I think we will reopen, but I think it's going to take a while uh, to recover. And I think the political consequences are unclear because we won't know. We will know better in September and October than we know today. But the North Carolinians think that our government, all, on average, got it better than other places. Uh, if Georgia, South Carolina are doing better, they're recovering more rapidly. Uh, Tennessee, for example, Florida, if they're, if they're recovering more rapidly than North Carolina, I think that uh, our current incumbents may, uh, may face more of a, of a headwind than they are expecting right now. Uh, on the other hand, if, of all the, if the country in the southeast is all sort of tracking similarly, then I think that people I think that people will revert to their partisan inclinations and we'll have a more normal election by the time we get to election day. Okay, one final question, and again, you've got about thirty seconds on this. So, what effect will that have on the presidential election in November? Will President Trump make it or not? Um, right now, I would I, I do not personally think he will win, but I think it will be a close election. Uh, and North Carolina will certainly be critical to the Senate control of the U.S. Senate, if not the presidency this year. Uh, and do you think the, uh, the House and the Senate will still be uh, split as far as control? Uh, I think the Senate is iffy and the House will remain Democratic. But a lot of this depends on turnout differentials we don't know about yet. And maybe people are not equally distributed in their fear of cast of going out to vote. And maybe that will affect the outcome. John, we certainly appreciate you being with us. John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation. If you missed this broadcast or would like to share it with a friend, you can go online and do so by going to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com, and either hear the entire broadcast or the segments you might have missed or want to share with a friend. The program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he promises to have another interesting guest next week. So the next week, same time, same station. Have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.